Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Hard living is the life for me. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, your outdoor living hour here at Rosie on the House. Fourth Saturday of the month, we've got Farmer Greg talking urban farming. And we've got a great topic today on harvesting and preserving. If you've been following along uh, month after month with uh, your urban farming talking points, uh, you've got a pretty nice little setup going. And you've got uh, fruits of your labor starting to produce off your trees and your plants. And we're going to talk about preserving them because a lot of these uh, plants, they bring produce a lot faster than we can eat them in real time. And Farmer Greg's got a lot of way to stretch that uh, that harvest out so you get it, it doesn't just become bird food. Right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, right now we're experiencing dozens and dozens of pounds of mulberries off of our dwarf black mulberry trees. And, you know, it, it, it gets overwhelming here in the next week. We will be harvesting thousands of them. They're amazing, but what do you do with them all? So I always reach out to my friend, Kari Spencer from the Microfarm Project and say, hey, Kari, what do we do with these? Hello, Kari. Hi, Greg. Hi, Romy. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for spending Saturday morning with us. My pleasure. So canning is one thing we can do with this. So we'll, we'll spend the first segment talking about canning and uh, what is canning? It's really jarring, isn't it, Kari? <laughs> That's right. In glass jars. We're not, uh, we're not industrial here with metal cans. It's, it's all done in reusable glass jars. You gotta love it. And there's two types. There are. There is pressure canning and there's water bath canning. What's the difference and why do we need them? <laughs> well, water bath canning is the the easier of the two. Well, they're both really easy, but you don't need expensive equipment for water bath canning. You just need a big pot and your jars and hot boiling water. And we do water bath canning with items that are high in acid. On the other hand, if you have produce that's low in acid, like maybe you want to can some green beans, well, then you might need a pressure canner. And pressure canners are a bit more expensive than water bath canners, but they do preserve low acid foods safely. And what is it about low acid foods when you say it, it preserves it safely? If you did a high acid food in a pressure cooker, does, is that unsafe? Oh, no. You can can anything in a pressure canner, um, but you do need it for low acid foods because botulism can grow in a low acid environment and even in your canning jars. <laughs> and you cannot get them hot enough to do that in a water bath canner. You've got to have a pressure canner to kill that so, botulism spore. So what it looks like is a, a water bath canner is just a, a pan on the, on the stove that you heat up and you put the jars in. Yeah, it looks like a big tamale pot. You know, it's just a, a, a nice big pot that you can put your 
Put your jars in. We, <clears throat> I have a 100-quart pot we boil crawfish in, and it has a basket that you bring out and all your crawfish and potatoes and corn and onions and uh, goodies are in that can. Well, I just put all the cans inside that basket and drop the basket and the crawfish, big old 100-quart crawfish. And I can do on the large ones uh, two rows of 12. So you can do 24 at once. Wow, wow. That's, <laughs> that's a lot. I don't <laughs> always great. have that much food to do at once, but you could. Right? <laughs> yeah, wow. And then the pressure canner actually... It, it creates pressure, so it's it gets hotter? Yes, it gets hotter, and it also, um, the pressure gets, uh, it gets the air out of the jars. Mm. Um, botulism can grow in a low oxygen environment, but if you get, it, it, it just creates a better seal than a water bath can or can. Now, forgive my ignorance. It comes to medical terms and diseases, I'm not very good. What is botulism, and how would I know if I had that when I opened up a, a jarred can of peaches a, a two years later? Well, that's the thing, Romy. It's really hard to tell because it doesn't really give off an odor. <laughs> it doesn't bubble like some other um, toxins do inside a jar. So it, it, it is really hard to tell. So you've got to be really safe when you're... Um, canning low acid foods so that you don't end up with that problem because you may not know it until you eat that <laughs> that produce right but if you if you have um, canned it in clean sterile jars and you've uh, used your pressure canner then the risk is very very low um, but I've been, the, go ahead I've been, I've been canning since high school. So I've been canning for 40 years and I've never had a problem. And I generally use my pressure canner for everything. I figure if I've got a pressure canner, I might as well just use it. Yeah, you might as well. And we've never had a problem either. As long as you follow the guidelines, you're good. But that botulism spore can make you very sick if you're not careful. So you want to make sure that you're following um current USDA guidelines. So let's say I've got a pressure cooker. How do I operate it? What what are those guidelines? In the pressure cooker, generally if you're canning something, you want to look for directions um, that will tell you what temperature and how long that you need to process your jars, depending on what it is that you are um, preserving. And those guidelines are very easy to get from the, from the USDA. They have all kinds of reference information about home canning and also the National Center for Home Food Preservation. They have lots of free recipes online and charts that can tell you what temperature and how long to preserve the different foods that that uh, you can preserve that you can preserve yes <laughs> uh, so that's the National Center for Home Food Preservation and that's at nchfp.uga.edu of yes. course it is we'll make sure and we get that link in the archive page to make that exactly for folks to find 
what's in season right now? This is a great time uh, for a good harvest for canning. Well, I am not doing anything right at this very moment, but I am looking forward to tomatoes very, very soon and um, stone fruits are coming up pretty soon. Yeah, Yeah. apples are coming up soon. Uh, Mulberries. apples, Apples are great to can because you can make applesauce, you can make apple pie filling, all kinds of things that you can do with apples. Yeah, apple butter. Um, mm-hmm. apple cider yeah it's there's so much to do with that and yep. through our uh, through our fruit tree program at the urban farm we've uh, nurtured the conversation around which apples to grow here and we've got uh, the Anna and the Dorset golden apples and they are monster producers I have one in my backyard that produces easily 300 pounds of apples a year <laughs> that's a lot and of apples. Like, we, 300 right? pounds 300 pounds. And when you get it, it's like when you get that much, it's like, what do you do with it all? You have to be prepped. And that's why uh, I love bringing Kari into this conversation because she really uh, gets us thinking about all right, in 45 days, that apple tree is going to have 300 pounds of apples on it. What am I going to do with them all? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you want to have something prepared in advance. You want to know what you're going to do with all those apples and you have the equipment, have the recipes. And the great thing about canning is that you don't need to have any refrigeration to store canned foods. Right, So you can store those on a shelf, under a bed, <laughs> you know, any any nook and cranny that you can can find to put your, put your jars in um, and you don't need to refrigerate them so let's let's talk about the process because we've been talking about canning but how do we process what goes in the jars it's it's really just making up a recipe or following a recipe right Kari sure yeah it is it's very easy and there are all kinds of recipes I really like to use old recipes like from vintage cookbooks because there are some really interesting recipes in in those old cookbooks but you want to make sure that you're looking at the directions and you're comparing them to the current guidelines from the USDA just to make sure that it's safe because some of those old cookbooks are not updated with uh, the most with the latest information but like I mentioned the National Center for Home Food Preservation has lots of recipes there are lots of food preservation cookbooks that you can find, all sorts of recipes. And it's really fun to play around with those recipes. And if you can bake a cake, you can preserve food. Just got to follow directions. Yeah. Pick your favorite recipe, make it, put that in the jars. That's when you can it. And you had mm-hmm. said you you don't have to refrigerate it, but this isn't anything you want to put in an un- air-conditioned garage, right? Well, theoretically, if it gets too hot in that garage, they could explode. <laughs> yes, but <laughs> um, it would have to get pretty hot. Okay. Well, maybe we'll have to test that someday. Just, you know, for reference, Gary, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Right. Just just for the consumer education. With Rosie on the house, we have Farmer Greg of the Urban Farm and Kari Spencer of the Micro Farm Project talking about preserving the harvest. I'm going to be around my vegetables. I'm going to chop down my vegetables. I love you most of all, my favorite vegetable. Continuing our conversation about preserving your uh, hard-grown fruits, vegetables around your home, castle, or cabin. And I say hard-grown if you've listened to Farmer Greg. You know he's great about giving you the easy way to do the gardening and how to let nature do most of the work for you. So we've got a harvest, and we're preserving it. We talked about uh, canning. We've got pickling and fermenting. And I will tell you, it took me a long time to like fermented food, but... Every year, I just enjoy it more and more and more. And I understand, pretty good for you, too. Right? Yeah, because of all the biology in it. Yeah. So how do I ferment something in my own homestead? <laughs> well, when we're talking pickling, that can mean fermenting. Okay. Right? Or it might not. But let's talk about fermenting first. Um, just like we talked about with canning, if you can follow a recipe then you can ferment foods. The basic process of fermenting is that you want to start with really clean containers. Put your food in those containers and you let it sit long enough to where the um, lactobacillus can just naturally populate that food and begin to ferment it. And the lactobacillus is really good for your gut, and it creates some delicious foods as well. You can ferment just about any kind of food. We talked about green beans in the last segment. You can ferment green beans if you want to. Lactobacillus. Okay. So that's that's the good stuff in the fermenting. Yeah, and it's naturally in the air. You don't have to add it to your fermentation containers. It will find your food if you <laughs> if you give it a chance. Um, but I would follow directions because you you want to make sure that again that your fermented foods are safe and also that they taste good. So um, you know follow follow your pickling directions and and. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple to do. So, hold on. There's a difference, though, between pick, pickling and fermenting. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. Well, fermenting is what it says it is. It's, you know, letting foods, um, letting foods ferment like you would alcohol or vinegars. You know, you let them ferment. But you can also pickle without doing that. You can pickle just in vinegar, right? So, you can put quick pickles in the refrigerator just by putting some um, cucumbers in vinegar with a little sugar and whatever spices you like and let them sit in that vinegar and that will pickle them as well. And that is also good for your gut, but it's not quite to the degree that fermenting is good for your gut. However, it is much easier to do. Well, in the fermenting, that's where the, the lactobacillus, that's bringing in probiotics to your body. That's right. And, that's right. you know, the more of that we can get in our microbiome, the healthier we're going to be. 
you know, rather than taking the probiotic box uh, or sorry, the probiotic pill, um, you know, you can eat it in fermented food. That's right. You can enjoy a delicious food and take care of your gut without buying expensive probiotics from the health food store. When what you, you Romy, you mentioned that uh, you know, the older you're getting, the more you're liking fermented food. I've I've noticed that too. When I was younger, you know, like sauerkraut, mm-hmm. it was like, ooh, really? Somebody would eat that, and now it's like, ooh, I like that. I put more on, please. I know <laughs> there's never right. never enough on a Reuben anymore for me. Yeah, exactly. And pickle juice so, is important for runners. Um, if you're running a pretty hot on a pretty hot day, you sweat uh, out a lot of water, but you also sweat out a lot of salt. And you know, jar oh, pickle yes. juice occasionally will rehydrate you and keep you from cramping. So if you can make it homemade, that's even better. Hmm. Right. So, Kari, if I was going to ferment something, what would the process look like? Well, you want to have a container that you that has um, a loose lid. You don't want to you don't want a container with a real tight lid because that'll keep the lactobacillus out. And you want to make sure that that container is sterilized. So you can run it through your dishwasher on a sterile setting, uh, or you can dunk it in boiling water (laughs) to sterilize it. You want to make sure it's really clean so that you don't have a lot of other things besides the lactobacillus in there. Then you want to start with some clean produce and cut that up and put water on it. Put some sugar on there and then cover it loosely so that, like I mentioned, you want to let that lactobacillus get in to the container. And the sugar feeds the lactobacillus. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. And then you're going to watch it. You know, you're going to watch it until it starts to, to bubble a little bit. And, you know, that's a sign that it's ready. And it's really, it's ready when it tastes good to you. And how long? Is this a five month process, three month process? It could be a week. Wow. Or it, or it could be several weeks. But oh. it doesn't take doesn't take terribly long. All right, well, we've talked about fermenting, canning, pickling. We've got dehydrating and freezing coming up here at Rosie on the House. RosieOnTheHouse.com is Arizona's number one most trusted referral network. All my friends now, when they say, do you, do you know a guy? Do you have a guy that does this? I said, yep, go to Rosie on the House online and you will get the best recommendations. We have used that and we are, we are grateful for it because we always get really good people uh, off your uh, site there. So thank you for that. Ranking Arizona's number one referral network for 13 years in a row. Start at RosieOnTheHouse.com. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Continuing our conversation with Farmer Greg of the Urban Farm and Kari Spencer, the Micro Farm Project, different ways to can and preserve the harvest that's coming out of our urban farms. And Farmer Greg, before we went on from pickling, you wanted to mention that you know pickles not just for cucumbers, right? And uh, I know that Kari has pickled some very interesting things. 
Yeah, you can you can pickle just about anything, right? I've made relishes out of everything from squash rinds to <laughs> you know just just all the all vegetables maybe that didn't ripen all the way before they fell off the vine. Those things can get pickled. I really like to pickle watermelon rinds. I haven't done it in a while, but amazingly enough, they're delicious. They taste like pickles. <laughs> they do taste like, I was wondering, it, it, everything you pickle, does it taste like sour or, or is it is it the savory? Is there anything sweet that you pickle? Uh, well, I like to add some sugar to relishes because mm-hmm. I, I like them to be a little bit sweeter. But that's after the fermenting process. Now, if you're quick pickling a relish, then you want to make sure that you add your sugar up front. But um, but the fermenting process, any sugar that you put in there gets eaten up by the bacteria. Mm-hmm. So you have to add it in the end if you want sweet a sweeter mm. flavored pickle. Uh, yeah. Asparagus is delicious pickled. Mm. Yeah, they're just <laughs> there's just so many things that you can pickle. Mm-hmm. Lemons. Lemons what? can be pickled. Oh, interesting. Cool. And after we look at all of those varieties, we can actually jump in and do something that's my favorite, and that's dehydrating, where we actually dry out the water of it. Uh, you know, you just stick it in a dehydrator and go. So tell me about that, Kari. <laughs> well, I like to dehydrate as well. Um, and to dehydrate, you can do it with a, a machine or you can just do it using the air, right? Because dehydrating right. is just drying out foods to the point where they are shelf stable and they don't um, decay, mm-hmm. right? They, they don't go bad. Right. One of my favorite, yeah. th- that's one of my favorite things to do with apples. Um, I'm still eating apple chips from my apple tree from last year. <laughs> and we're, we're coming up on the next season already, and I still have some left over. Now, it's obviously not good for us to ever get dehydrated. What does that do to our food to dehydrate it? Oh, well, dehydrating takes, takes out all the water. So the food is very lightweight. And it takes up very little space for storage, and you don't need to refrigerate it. Assuming you can get all the water out of it. I had, uh, I had a situation a couple of years back where I dehydrated a bunch of apricots and put them in a quart jar and set them on a shelf. And I came back and uh, a few months later, and they were all moldy because I hadn't dehydrated them completely. Completely. Okay. But nutrition-wise, yeah. you still have all the benefits it's just lacking the water right and you can do that in your oven um you know you can do kale chips in your oven there's you know you can put them under a sheet of glass uh in the summertime here that completely works um or you can actually buy a dehydrator and i a few years ago i bought a heavy duty one because i i like dehydrating apples and apricots uh, and when it's mesquite bean season, I stick my mesquite beans in there after I harvest them and make sure they're totally dry. Going back to kale chips, what's mm-hmm. the proper way to prepare them so I can enjoy them? I, I've tried, <laughs> man. 
it, it, they, they still come out chalky. You know, even if I add like maybe some Cajun seasoning to them, there's a little bit of a kick. Mm-hmm. But is there a secret to making really flavorful kale chips? I think that would be in the recipe, wouldn't it, Kari? Yeah. Yeah. It. I like to put just a little bit of oil on mine. <laughs> Like just with a, a spritzer, an oil spritzer. And you put it on uh, before you eat them, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you would you would put that on before you dehydrate you, them. Before you dehydrate them. Oh, yes. okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And then your spices will stick better, for one thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it also just adds a little bit of flavor. That's personal so that, preference. Yeah, that to me sounds like... Um, that would solve your chalky solution. That it would. I do like a, yeah. a kale salad every once in a while, but when you add enough oil and maybe some fresh salmon and some walnuts, it takes out of the chalkiness. Kale chips are, are hit and miss with me, but I'll give it a shot. Well, and then there's fruit leather. This is a, a Kari Spencer specialty. Tell us about fruit leather, would you? Yeah, well, fruit leather is one of my favorites to make because – when my kids were small, they really loved, you know, that the, the fruit roll-ups <laughs> that you can buy at the grocery store. But those things are really full of sugar and preservatives. But I found that I could make that fruit leather at home in my, my dehydrator by pureeing fruit and adding whatever seasonings that I wanted to it and spreading it out on a very thin layer and putting that into my dehydrator and uh, letting it become fruit leather. It's very, very easy to do. And my kids loved it. And my husband loved it too, I think, because anytime I would make apple pie fruit leather, it would just go. It wouldn't oh last. God. It wouldn't even last long enough to get in the kids' lunches because we just eat it. Wow. Well, yeah, I was going to say, and it doesn't last very long because it's so good. What other kind of recipes do you use for fruit leather? I've done all kinds of experimenting. Sometimes I'll use a recipe, and sometimes I'll just make something. Like I've done peach pie, like made a peach pie filling. And then mm-hmm. pureed it <laughs> and spread that out and made peach pie leather. One time I made a honeydew melon leather. I didn't like that one very much, but my family did. You know, so it's really a just just a trial and error sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, just try things and see if you like them and if you don't, don't make it again. Do something else. Well, now that you mentioned pie, could you do it with nuts? Can you make maybe pecan pie leather? I can dream, can I? Ooh. Oh. Okay. You probably could. <laughs> I, I never have. Yeah, but but one secret I will tell you for all the parents out there who might make this is make it on a wax paper or a parchment paper. And then you can just cut strips out and roll them up with that parchment paper on the back. And that way, if they take them in their lunches, they just peel off the paper when they want to eat it. And 
that kind of uh, keeps it contained, keeps it in its own little wrapper. Your real, your own real fruit roll-up. And you're right, yeah. that stuff I, you see at the store, that, whew, it is lots of, uh, lots of sweets, a lot of preservatives, and this is definitely a, uh, a much better alternative for, uh, for our kids. What, what do you do? I mean, you just get like a big KitchenAid blender, blend it all up, and then add a few things to it, pour it out, let it harden. Uh, explain the following the recipe. If I'm following that, what am I following? Okay, so I didn't have I didn't ever use a recipe, honestly, for fruit leather. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just got an idea and tried it out. So, but I the the pie leathers that I made, the apple and the peach, I actually I actually heated up the fruit and put in the spices and then cooled it and spread it out. But other leathers that I've done, I've just put in the food processor and pureed them raw and spread them out on the on the um, parchment. And both ways work. Cool. When this is so far, we've talked about a myriad of ways to preserve your harvest, because if you have peach trees or apple trees or uh, any kind of fruit trees in, you could come up with hundreds of pounds of stuff to process and you need to have a logical thing to do with it. Otherwise, it just comes bird food when it falls off the tree, right? Yeah, that's true. It is it is vitally important to have a plan in place if you're going to get a big harvest, um, especially for things that all come ripe at the same time, yeah. <laughs> you know, or that or um, foods that go bad really quickly once they're harvested. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to quickly preserve those foods so that none of it gets thrown away and that's that's doubly true for stone fruit peaches apricots plums because we get about two weeks to pull them off of the tree and you know if you have a peach tree that gives you 400 peaches which is completely possible here in the low desert can you eat 400 peaches in two weeks (laughs) so Having a plan in place is really important. Yes, it is. Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention, too, that you you and I both have heavy-duty dehydrators. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't start out with that. I would just go to a thrift store and buy a little dehydrator and try it out and see how you like doing it first, if you like dehydrating. And secondly, if you like to air fry or if you like to use um, convection for cooking, they now make units that you can put on your counter that will air fry, convection cook, toast, and they dehydrate as well. So you don't need to have necessarily a separate appliance to do Uh. it. That's a great idea. I started out with a uh, garage sale find maybe 15 years ago. It was one of the, a round one about the size of a plate and it had different layers on it. 
you know, so it was uh, about the size of a dinner plate. And then there was like six layers uh, that you could stack stuff in. And uh, that's what I had for my first 15 years of dehydrating until it died. So it can be that simple. Yes, it can. And those are not very, those are not expensive at all, even to buy new. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked about canning. We've talked about pickling and fermenting and dehydrating. We still have one more method that comes with us several different options for it that we'll talk about in our final segment here at Rosie on the House with Farmer Greg of the Urban Farm and Kari Spencer, the Microfarm Project. final urban farm segment for this april farmer greg of the urban farm and his guest Kari spencer of the micro farm project and you know take us on home uh, taking us on home to freezing perhaps the simplest thing you can do is uh, just cut stuff up and stick it in the freezer right Kari? yeah and that's the one that most people uh are most familiar with mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah it is the it is the easiest thing to do, but it does require freezer space. And if you have a lot of produce, <laughs> then you can fill up your freezer with just those peaches that you were talking about. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I've done that before. I usually put them in gallon jars. Um, so stone fruit, that's anything with a pit in the middle of it. Those are super simple. Uh, you know, you basically what I do is I go out and on a harvest day and our stone fruit starts about mid-May and goes to the end of June, depending on which trees we're talking about. And we get about two weeks of peaches off of a tree or two weeks of apricots off of, a tree, off of each tree. And so what I do is I go out in the morning and my favorite, one of my favorite days of the year is the first day of apricots where I walk out at five o'clock in the morning in my front yard about mid-May and start picking up the apricots right off of the ground. Most of them, the first few days, don't even make it into the house. Uh, But what I'll do is I'll take them in and I'll cut them in half and stick them on a cookie tray and stick them in the freezer. Next day, I pull them out and I stick them in a gallon jar and stick them back in the freezer. It's that simple. That's a great way to do it because then you don't end up with a big clump of them all stuck together. Right? Exactly. Freeze them, them in a single layer individually and then transfer them to a jar or a bag in your freezer. Yeah. Could you exactly. vacuum could you vacuum seal those once you have them frozen? Do a little vacuum sealing and throw them in the freezer? Yes, you could, but you want to make sure that you're not uh your the power on your vacuum sealer is not such that it draws the moisture out because even frozen, there's still moisture in stone fruits mm-hmm. and if you if your <laughs> sealer sucks hard enough or long enough it can start to draw that moisture you end up with uh, fruit mush yeah yeah <laughs> but you can definitely vacuum seal it just with a gentle touch <laughs> well then there's you know for peaches i do the same thing with peaches uh, but they usually i usually go out and pick them on day one and then on day two that's when I, you know, I give them a day to fully ripen and then I cut them in half and do the same thing. And I just, I actually have a few gallons of peaches left over from last season. And one of the things that I did is I put it through a juicer. I put solid frozen peaches through a juicer. And what comes out of it is this amazing sorbet. 
Oh, that's a good idea. Nice. Right? Yeah. So that's one of the things that I do with uh, frozen, you know, frozen fruit is that. The other thing I do is I'll stick them. I'll drink a green drink that has uh, an avocado and spinach in it. And I use the peaches and apricots in there for the sweetener. Gary, you had mentioned using the the vacuum sealer. Yes. I, I love mine. Yeah, there was a time where we were making ourselves a lot of health smoothies and I would cut up all the fruits and vegetables that we put in those smoothies and we would bag them all and stick them in the freezer. And then when we wanted to make smoothies, we just grab a bag, you know, cut it open, pour it in the blender and we had all of our ingredients pre-made. So it made it really easy for us to to make those smoothies. That's been duly cool. noted. So, <laughs> on freezer space, what do you prefer, a vertical or a, a chest freezer? Well, I have both. <laughs> the chest freezer, I, I'm a really short woman. I'm five feet tall. All right, so a chest freezer, anything in the bottom of it, I can't reach without stepping up on a stool. Mm. All right, so I do like a chest freezer just because it's there; they are more efficient. But uh, I also have an upright because I can reach everything in that freezer without a stool. <laughs> I do love my chest freezer. I have a small one right now, and um, it's just you know they're really efficient and. As long as it's a short one, it's not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You really can pack a lot in there. It's just a matter of making sure you remember what's in there. Because by the time you fill it to the top, what's what's in the bottom of that trust freezer, you might find two or three years later. (laughs) Really, really important to keep a list of what you put in your chest freezer. Absolutely. And, And going back to the canning, Uh, And the dehydrating, I take a a Sharpie marker and I write on the side of the jar the date and what it is. Otherwise, you know, I pulled a jar out of the freezer the other day and it it looked like peach stuff, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't tell whether it was recent peach or apricot or uh, who knows. So when you can't confirm it, don't consume it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So make sure that you mark on the jars what you've done all right farmer greg and somebody can learn more at uh urbanfarm.org is uh, our website and um yeah and kari you, uh, your website cityfarmingbook.com city farming book for kari spencer's micro farm project and then farmer greg it's urbanfarm.org and you can sign up for a lot of the great programs that he puts on together there along with his own regular podcast. Thanks for spending part of your Saturday morning with us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. 